Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, our podcast wondering if it's 2023 yet. My name's, Co- <laughs> My name is Corey Hazelhurst, I'm a partner in propaganda with Steve Holmes. It's been a week, literally a week in 2022, mate. I know you've been busy, but... It can't finish soon enough. However, I am reliably informed it's the beginning of the year, and therefore in the tra- time on the tradition, here's our movers and shakers picks. Morose enough. I don't know. <laughs> is that on brand despairing enough? I feel like it is for you, mate. So, for those listeners who are new and somehow still listening through the despair, um, at the start of every year, Steve and I pick the politicians we think will move and shake in British politics. And um, last year, I think actually, I think my picks probably were more successful on on points. Um, so we have a few different categories. We've got leaders, we've got cabinet ministers, shadow cabinet ministers, wildcard picks. Steve won the toss and therefore he's going to start with his leader pick. So which party leader, Steve, is going to move and shake the most in 2022? Well, I think I'm going to go for what I suspect is the safe option uh, when it comes to this pick and go with Keir Starmer. Well, that is unfortunate because Keir Starmer was my pick. Thought he might have been. Yeah. Okay. Why have you gone for Keir Starmer, Steve? Uh, the Conservative government is very much on the back foot at the moment, um, meaning there's lots of opportunities for uh, for Starmer and the Labour Party to start setting the agenda and actually um, be able to actually point to different uh, elements of, you know, we defeated the government on this, we were able to get them to backtrack on this, that, that, that kind of thing. This is probably the strongest position Starmer's been in since his, since his leadership began. Uh, and I, 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 it's difficult to see how it gets better than than this at the for the time being. So I'm picking Starmer because he's got the opportunity to to, to make something of his position now um, across a lot of different areas. It might be policy, could be attacking the government, could be just setting the overall agenda in in British politics. There's lots of opportunity there. We're starting to see that. Obviously, he did a speech um, earlier this week in Birmingham uh, outlining, what was it, his, his security contract or, or whatever? Security, respect and prosperity. Yes. Uh, his contract with the uh, with the British people. The, the leadership is of the Labour Party is starting to get the ball rolling as we are coming out of, hopefully, the, the pandemic. I feel like we said the last year of coming out of the pandemic. Let's, you know, not get too far ahead of ourselves. However, I think what has changed, and we hinted about this on the end of your episode we recorded with John, Bridget and LJ, is that it feels like, in terms of the, the, the weird two years of pandemic politics seems to have passed, the government isn't getting a vaccine bounce. Um, in fact, it, most people don't think the government's handling the pandemic well at all which is unsurprising, but I think that for most of the last two years, they've been given the benefit of the doubt. They're not really getting the benefit of the doubt anymore. I think you're right. That does give an opportunity for Starmer is the high watermark in his leadership. And I think also it's a point that Steve Richards has made, which is that when an opposition leader has a consistent lead in the polls, people start to look more seriously 
at what he's saying, what he's doing. And therefore, I think that the speech in Birmingham, which you've highlighted, got a little bit more traction often, I think, than a lot of the things that Starmer have said, precisely because it's being delivered from a position of strength now. In, in all the seriousness, I do think that the pandemic is not quite over yet. And therefore, the fact that Labour votes might be needed to pass some of the coronavirus measures. Um, I think you're right. There is an opportunity to uh, to push for sick pay. So, and I don't agree with commentators who were saying that somehow Starmer should have pushed for that uh, six weeks ago when the the first votes happened. I think they were doing a, a tactical error, to be honest. Um, more likely to unite the Conservatives against Labour than to continue to drive a wage between Johnson and his backbenchers. But I think that power in Parliament, is, if, if Johnson is unable to unite the, the Parliamentary Conservative Party, I think that will be quite significant. Which I suppose means they've got to pick Boris Johnson, doesn't it? Which is a shame, really. So we had, um, obviously, 2020, Johnson just won the 2019 election. Looked like a colossus in British politics. 2021 sort of lost a bit of credibility, but still had time to put the show on the road. As 2022 kind of blearily hung over, peers through the curtains at the mess that Boris Johnson's making of his premiership, I really don't see him putting this back together. No, I'm, I'm struggling to see a, a path out of it for him, or rather the only path out of it involves him ceasing to be Boris Johnson and completely changing who he is or, or, or how he acts, which is just not, not, not likely. Having said that, as was, I think it was Sky News said, he has a haircut now. He's got a new haircut. And a new tie. A Don't new, forget the new tie. A new tie, which therefore means it's a new Boris Johnson. It's just the most vapid, nonsensical gibberish. Like, the man having a haircut and getting a new tie. Well, how do you know it's a new tie? Like, did he say it was a new tie? Was the receipt still on it? Yeah. Or the, the price the tag? Yeah. Well, heaven help us if the price tag was on it, because uh, knowing his expensive taste probably cost him like 400 quid for a single time. Well, he probably got someone else to pay for it. That is that, that, that is true. And we probably also will find the uh, WhatsApp messages about it as well, give it a few more months. Well, I don't know. Well, you probably couldn't find them, to be fair. They were an old phone. It's hard to transfer messages yeah. over. Yeah, understandable, understandable. Johnson, as mayor, had people who could say no to people who wanted to do things. And he doesn't seem to have that in number 10. Yeah. Uh, we've sort of talked at length about the fact that Cummings is no longer there. There doesn't seem to be anyone driving the ship or even to know what, what's going on anymore. I mean, it, even during Theresa May's premiership, we would usually say have picked her as the main mover and shaker. Yeah. Because it would be her deciding... It would be her deciding what her Brexit deal was, in all likelihood. The fact that we're not even prepared to say that with Johnson, I think, is very significant. I struggle to see how he's Prime Minister at the end of this year. On the other hand, as John Cotton pointed out in our quiz, Prime Ministers are hard to remove. Yeah, and it really does boil down to just the basic political calculations of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the pretenders to the throne in the form of Sunak, Truss, etc. Um, as to whether or not they want a fresh chalice or a potentially poisoned chalice they may very well just decide you know what it's better for us to just hold off and wait for the uh, uh, wait for a loss that um, can be solely attributed to Johnson and then go for it then oh I would disagree with that I don't think I don't think the Tories think in terms of good elections to lose speaking of pretenders to the throne <laughs> cabinet picks 
my pick first. So I'm going to choose Rishi Sunak. Okay. This is not because I think that were Boris Johnson somehow to be deposed by all those emails sent into the 1922 committee, I don't necessarily think Rishi Sunak would be the next Prime Minister. I think for me, it's more... I picked Liz Truss last year, which was one of my Nostradamus moments. And I, I, I feel we're sort of at peak trust. She's Foreign Secretary, which is uh, a bit like Theresa May made Boris Johnson Foreign Secretary. It's a very good way of parking a potential rival, mm-hmm. although it's a very high-profile post. This year will be about inflation. It will be about the cost of living crisis. It will be about um, support to businesses who are being hit by the pandemic, by the supply chain issues, by the pandemic as well. And I think there'll be pressure in March in the budget for Rishi Sunak to spend, commit to money on, say, the levelling up agenda and more support for businesses. I don't see him doing it, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, I think that's actually, this is where the power is at the moment. The power is lying with the Treasury. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'd agree with that. I think that's a very sensible pick. Um, t- to be honest, I think in, in, in any year, choosing the Chancellor of the Exchequer is a very sensible pick when it comes to choosing your, your cabinet, uh, mover and shaker, because it's the Treasury. They've got their fingers in everything. That's true. Although, although I'm not sure we've actually chosen a chancellor too often. I don't think we ever picked Phil Hammond when he was chancellor. No, no, but I, but I, but I think your logic holds. But it's interesting that therefore we haven't. Yeah, I, I think it's. I, I think a big part of it kind of comes down to whether or not the chancellor is aligned to the, um, like the the, the prime minister of the day. So like. With Blair and Brown, for instance, TBGB's oppositional, like, fr- fractious relationship, um, you know, it makes sense to go for that. Osborne, Cameron, very much on the same, same wavelength on most things. So, like, you can't necessarily differentiate between the, between the two. Really, the, the, the Treasury has its most power when it's held by someone who's effectively a rival to the Prime Minister. Uh, because as you can see with Sunak, they can go, oh, I'm sorry, Prime Minister, we're not paying for that, or we don't want to pay for that. And it takes a very strong Prime Minister to, to, to overrule that, because ultimately you need to be in a position where you can just say, well, I'm sorry to hear that you don't support this policy that we were elected on and funding it. I'm sorry to hear, therefore, that you're resigning from, from the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, which obviously, bomb, Boris Johnson does not have that, um, that, that, that strength. So I, I think Sunak is very much a, a very solid pick. Who have you gone for? I've, I've gone for, I think, which was the same one I did last time, which was Patel. Interesting. Okay. Not because I'm necessarily expecting great things from her from the perspective of, you know, becoming a, a, a leadership candidate or, or, or anything like that. Um, though I'm almost certain she will dip her toes in that water. Um, but I just feel like the, so, like, the government still doesn't have a lot of bandwidth to actually get things done, but the things they are getting done very much seem to be within, within Patel's department. So we have, you know, changing the laws so that it becomes illegal to, um, you know, save, uh, save people who are trying, uh, save refugees who are coming over via sea. Um, you know, we've got the, the laws on being able to strip British citizenship from people who have 
access to other nationalities and other kind of citizenship options. Now, all of those sorts of things, very much kind of more kind of culture war type areas, do really seem to be the, the, the one of the few areas where the government can get some things out. And due to the quite all-encompassing nature in many ways of the Home Office, a lot of that, that culture war stuff ends up in Patel's lap. Uh, and uh, as such, I think Patel's probably going to be, if, if not the the figure pushing a lot of these sorts of things, she's certainly going to be the face of a lot of it. Not necessarily a very popular face, given no. I think there was some recent polling on areas of government and the public's approval ratings on various issues in terms of the economy and the pandemic and what have you. And actually, the the satisfaction with the government on immigration was is net my, minus 31 approval, yeah. which is astoundingly high when you've got a Home Secretary who is as hardline, not just in rhetoric, but also in, stub- in substance as Patel is. Yeah. This was sort of a theme when we talked about her on Movers and Shakers podcast last year. She was doing lots of terrible things and making waves, but almost by making those waves, somehow it creates a moral panic that actually then seems to backfire on the government's popularity. Yeah, I mean, just just a bit of devil's advocate view um, is uh, on, on that, especially in relation to that, those polling figures. Um, when you say, oh, 31% of people, oh, sorry, you know, there's a, a negative 31 on terms of like the, uh, how well the government is doing on handling immigration. Like you can look that that can come from both sides of the aisle. So you can't, that doesn't necessarily mean it's suddenly people are going, oh my God, these the, 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 these policies are inhumane or, or problematic. It's, it could equally be, you know, your Nigel Farage is going, this doesn't go far enough because just as an, just as an example of this, I think today it kind of got announced that there was going to be, there was going to be an exemption made in the law that would basically makes it a, a you know, an offense to assist people who are kind of like at sea, um, trying to enter the country. Um, but, but, uh, there's an exemption made for basically seafarers. So people who actually work on boats. So who exactly is going to be at risk of punishment of this law if the people who are actually out there doing this aren't going to be punished by it? And suddenly you can see how the the the, the, the right wing could go, this is just meaning the stuff. They're not actually doing anything to actually stop this problem and, and throw in the the French and their the, the capacity to not want to, to play ball with the UK at the moment in any form due to Brexit, due to the elections that are going on there. And, and you, you can suddenly see how you might get a bit of a, a right-wing kind of like storm in a teacup. Right-wing tea. Yeah. I think the, the other interesting thing, and it's Suella, Bra- Bra- it's Suella Braverman who is leading this from the government at the moment, but the uh, the acquittal of the Colston Fall this mm-hmm. week, um, it'll be interesting to see if that has any ramifications. At the moment, it's more the sort of Ministry of Justice, but I wonder if the Home Office, that sort of politicisation of the courts and the, the crackdowns on protests you've talked about, it'll be interesting to see if actually that does lead to any action from the Home Office, whether or not that leads with public approval or not. Yeah. Okay. Next, when we move on to shadow cabinet picks, I think before we do that, though, we are recording the day after the very, very sudden and very, very tragic death of Jack Dromey. Um, obviously, MP for Birmingham Erdington was, I think, a shadow minister. Spoke at the dispatch box on Thursday, yeah. the day before he passed away, about the uh, Afghan refugee settlement and the need for the government not to 
water that down. Um, and so I know in the Parliamentary Labour Party at the moment, there will be lots of shock and lots of sadness. And certainly in Birmingham, like, in Birmingham politics, I think, is, is the, the tributes from across all sides, I think, are testament to what a legend he was, actually. Mm. I did some door knocking in Erdington in the 2019 election, and Jack Dromey is definitely the best person I've seen on the doorstep ever in terms of talking to voters and his role in the Labour movement. He's actually probably the last of his kind. Yeah. And our thoughts are with Harriet Harman. In terms of then, Steve, your shadow cabinet mover and shaker, who have you gone with? I've gone with Wes Streeting, who's somebody I'd, we've not really kind of like talked about in any of these sorts of things um, previously. Um, so yeah, I've, I've gone with Streeting because I've now been moved up properly to to, to the cabinet. Um, was it the, the last reshuffle? Um, the, the, the more recent yes, one. Yes, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, so he was a junior minister before that. In I think he was in. I think he was a child poverty minister. Yeah, but um, Streeting has been promoted. Um, he's a full on like shadow cabinet member now, uh, and it feels like. There's a Labour person being giving the talking head about something. It feels like it always seems to be West Streeting. It could just be like I, I just happen to be looking at these sorts of things, but he very much seems to be a, a for lack of a better term, a safe pair of hands that the that the uh, Labour leadership are putting out there. Um, and my suspicion is that this is going to be one of those uh, years where it could be make or break for him in terms of any kind of wider ambitions he, he might have and, and things like that. And I think there's a, a big potential for him um, in, in this year to kind of potentially shake things up, hold the government to account. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and as such, I think he's a not necessarily a safe pick, but a sensible one. I think he's a very, very solid pick. You're right. He's he, Even before he was promoted into the top tier of the Shadow Cabinet, he was definitely one of the much-used media performers, usually quite an effective media performer that Labour would put out. And I think had earned a lot of plaudits in December when the debate on the new measures were coming in by coming into a new brief, masterminding a lot of information very, very quickly, and certainly was being talked about as a future leader by, by some because of his appearances at the dispatch box. Um, fun fact about West Streeting, obviously former president of the National Union of Students, which other prominent former Labour politicians used to be president of the National Union of Students? President, specifically. Oh, Straw? Jack Straw certainly was. Who is the... Was, was he who shall not be named from where you're from also president? Phil Willis yeah. was also, yeah. I, I knew he was involved. I wasn't sure if he was president or not. He was very much president, present and involved. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think West Streeting's a solid pick. I had him as my first pick, but I'm, I'm not unhappy to have my reserve pick, actually, because I think it is a bit of a toss-up. I think it's... Lisa Nandy and Angela Rayner, I think, for sort of similar reasons, could also be quite solid picks. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with Rachel Reeves. Reeves was my, my alternative pick and actually like was originally my, my first pick, but I, I erred literally as we were as uh, we, we, we were recording and went with Streeting instead because I was I couldn't separate the two. So yeah, no, Reeves is an, an excellent pick, I think. And again, I think part, 
partly, and this is um, certainly, I, I think Labour conference last year was about changing a lot of the internal rules in the party in terms of leadership elections, in terms of internal selections. I think this year is going to be very much, as you say, that as we've said before, there's that space for Labour to set out its stall in anticipation of the next election. And apparently there's also elections in May. <laughs> I wonder who's getting elected in May. Um, let's not worry about that for now. Interestingly, Labour had a lead over the Tories in who would handle the economy best, which I don't think even Labour had in 1997. Um, so uh, I think that's... I mean, it's partly, I think, testament to Rachel Reeves. I think it's probably probably more of a testament to how badly the government's fallen in the estimations of a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and again, I imagine it's something that will snap back uh, over the next few months. Um, but it's interesting that I think there is the space to be heard. And I think that poly- I think Rachel Reese will be a massive figure in putting forward a future Labour policy agenda. And also, like we're treating, very, very trusted on the media round. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that policy agenda point you've made there is um, very apt because I think this is the first year where um, the Labour leadership and Starmer can actually really start to seriously put some policy agenda out there. I know we've said multiple times that they needed to start doing it and, you know, maybe like I'm happy to admit that they probably shouldn't have started seriously putting things out um, up until uh, up until now because clearly, like, country wasn't listening. Um, but now, now they do appear to be, as you say, we're, we're, Labour is ahead on uh, metrics like the economy and, and various other things as well. So now is the time to do it. And uh, if, if if I'd make a guess, I'd, I'd say that this year will be a should well rather it should be a big one for policy announcements and actually shaping what, for lack of a better term, Starmerism is. Will it be a fantastic year for Britain? (laughs) Uh, Whether or not Johnson's still Prime Minister. (laughs) um, Also, uh, Rachel came to Birmingham, did some campaigning in in Bourneville. Only a few, you could probably, uh, Usman Khawaja could probably hit a six from the house in which we were recording this to where we were door knocking with Rachel Reeves. That's a cricket reference. Apologies, uh, I, Steve. I, I know I know what a six is. It's a number between five. Um, fun fact about Rachel Reeves plays chess. She, I think, played for England at chess at school level. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So that's that's a fun fact. So when chess and schools and communities do things in, par- in Parliament, she's often one of the MPs who's there. Interesting. Backbench pick... I don't think there's any need to change your winning formula, Steve. Yeah. Why yeah. would I check? Why would I not stick with Brexit halfman Steve Baker? This this was my fear because I too had gone was my first pick for Brexit halfman Steve Baker because uh, it just makes sense. He removes all the MPs from all the WhatsApp groups. <laughs> he really does, and then adds David Frost to an MP WhatsApp group. I, I do love how these the leaks of this uh, of the uh, the WhatsApp groups and the Conservatives have just become like the equivalent of like schoolyard gossip. It's it's amazing. But it's an interesting <laughs> phenomenon which I don't know, part of me thinks it's almost worth a podcast and then part of me thinks it could be actually stretched out twenty minutes talking about it. But I, I think it's interesting that I think people must know, especially a WhatsApp group like that, where you're going to have 80, 90, 100 people. Someone's leaking it. So I, I, it's that interesting dynamic of, are you, you must be writing in there assuming it might get leaked to you, then writing in it assuming that you'd leak it. Are you writing in it to then leak it yourself 
Ooh. Is that, yeah, all these dark arts these politicians have, Steve? Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, the kicking out of, like, less hardline MPs, people who are willing to try and defend the government on, on certain issues and, and, and things like that. Um, I, I, I want, like, it genuinely wouldn't surprise me if it was actually Baker leaking these images himself. Because it really sets him up as a certain type of conservative, which could, which isn't necessarily represented in the current runners and riders for the Tory leadership. And I wonder if those sorts of leaks might be coming from him as a way to start laying the foundation for that. This is the second time that you've thought about Steve Baker as a dark horse leadership candidate yeah. on your on this podcast. Which is two times too many, in my view. But I'm um, not wrong, necessarily. <laughs> that's why I don't want to have to think about it. <laughs> um, I think the other thing is that... Um, I, I, so, uh, I suppose... It's, so, we haven't actually talked about why he, he, I suppose, be a mover and shaker, but I suppose, in sum, it's that, as chair of the COVID recovery group, he essentially has a group of about... 80 to 100 Conservative MPs who seem to be willing to rebel against the government, Mm -hmm. which means that somehow under this wonderful majoritarian system, which you'll remember, Steve, people like because it gives government strong and stable majorities, even a government with a majority of 80 apparently now cannot pass legislation on its own because of the small faction within that party. It's almost like the voting system doesn't work. Who would have thought it? There we go. Less than half an ad recording, Steve. We've got our first mention already this year about why we need to change the voting system. <laughs> Do you want to distract me by talking about your backbench pick? I will indeed. For I have decided that if I cannot go for Steve Baker... It's going to be a field pick, isn't it? It's a sensible pick. Oh, no. I believe no. that this year oh, God. is going to see no. the rise of... Like, like the rise of probably the next left-wing candidate what? for the uh, Labour Party leadership elections when whenever those happen next. Because they tend to operate basically on a buggins term from the campaign group. It's somebody has to be for, move forward. And I believe that at least one of those people genuinely thinks that they would be very good at the job anyway. And, and I think they have been trying to position themselves as the voice of the campaign group and the voice of the left, certainly in Parliament and certainly with the left of the Labour Party. I believe that 2022 is the year of Richard Bergen. Okay. Interesting. I thought you were going to go for someone like Desmond Swain. I was very, very worried it would be that left field. Um, <laughs> no, not quite that left field. <laughs> I I can see the logic for Bergen. I think he's definitely doing what you suggest. It'll be interesting to see. I don't know how many waves he'll make in British politics this year. I think I personally would have gone for Mark Harper as a backbench pick. Yeah. As a sort of measured... Like, if Steve Baker is the Brexit hard man, Mark Harper's very much the lint chocolate, sort of bit smooth. It's the respectable face of yeah. head-banging I'll, backbenchers. I'll, I'll be entirely honest. I was just struggling to think of any other backbenchers, and then Bergen came into my mind, and I just loved the idea of selecting him so much that my brain wouldn't move on. So, like, I fully expect you to win that this, this, this round this year. <laughs> Fun fact about Richard Bergen is that... He represents the same seat that Dennis Healy did. Ah, interesting. There you go. Who knew that one of my superpowers was fun facts, but every Labour and Peace. <laughs> Moving on from that, 
Politician neither in Labour or the Conservatives. I believe it's your pick first. I believe it is, yes. So I've gone for Ed Davey, leader of the Liberal Democrats. And hello, Mark, and Happy New Year. Indeed. Lib Dems had a good year last year, didn't they? Very good year. Yeah, given where we are, I, I feel like it's something that could very well continue. The success that they had was off the back of like by-elections and things. And obviously, you can't really predict by-elections if and when they happen and... and I struggle to see a situation emerging, barring like some scandal that we could not foresee, where they f- fall back. I feel like he's a solid pick. Interesting to see both Kistama and Ed Davey talking about um, some sort of non-aggression pact uh, in um, in various seats, uh, similar, I suppose, to 1997. Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty solid pick. I'm going to go for Nicola Sturgeon. Always a, a decent pick. I think an ever present. I wonder if uh, if if anyone in the future was to log, you know, who have we picked? I think Sturgeon would appear in every year. Probably yeah. the only politician I reckon to appear in every single one. Yeah, uh, which I think is testament to her longevity, uh, our predictability, and the fact that uh, it, the, the union is is not going away. Well, actually, the union might go away anytime soon. That's kind of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> Commentator or publication? So we've. Change this one slightly because we ended up using commentators almost as a standard for publications themselves. Yeah. So we thought that we'd go one step further and essentially say you can either pick a commentator or you can pick a publication. And I believe it's me first. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to win, but I have a feeling that it's an interesting pick anyway. I'm going to go for the BBC. Okay. Uh, obviously, I suppose it is probably still the UK's most read watched news source so yeah. I suppose in that sense both on, on website and on television on radio it is important but also there's going to be a lot of personality churn at the BBC so Andrew Marr isn't doing the Sunday morning interview show anymore Laura Koonsberg is going to stand down as BBC political editor um, well, I think is still working for the BBC uh, there's rumours she might take the Andrew Marr slot but I don't think that's confirmed yet Um so I think it'll be interesting to see who they, their, who the BBC pick as its new political editor and who they pick in that Sunday morning interview slot. And although in many ways the, the BBC sort of coverage of politics is driven by the tabloids, I think actually the personnel that are picked will have quite a big sway in how British politics is viewed in 2022. Yeah, and, and I think there's also lots of little things, actually, that the BBC are doing in regards to that that, that make it quite a, a solid pick. Um, so that like I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen, I can't remember the guy's name, but one of the newsreaders from the BBC basically started doing... Oh, like, Ross Atkins. Yes, Ross yeah. Atkins um, has been doing, like, video roundups of news of stories, of all kinds of different things. And these seem to have kind of go semi-viral at the very least within like the political it's 4 million yeah. views was that, that how semi-viral oh, okay uh, I, I wasn't like I wasn't sure exactly how many you, you like achieved but Steve's uh, high standards for online marketing I'm sorry <laughs> unless it achieved 20 million views <laughs> yeah. um, but no like obviously it depends on the video and depends on the, on the different things but pretty much everything that he seems to be churning out or rather he and his team um, are, are churning out of that format seems to be getting a significant amount of engagement some of it going ridiculously high and going full-on viral some of it just doing little kind of like get, getting shared in, in little pockets of, of twitter and, and things like that but that's the sort of thing actually that 
the BBC seems to be focusing on in, in, in some form, and it's a very good way to actually uh, actually get things um, watched and paid attention to. Mm. So I think, yeah, no, the BBC's a, kind of a sensible pick there. Well, it feels cheating a bit to call it like as one institution, but yeah, but uh, yeah, in some ways, my, my, my gut instinct is to go. You can't pick the B. That's just silly. Like oh. it's just so ubiquitous that it's it's very difficult almost to come up with a, a situation where any other kind of commentator or publication is more influential than than than, than the BBC. You know. And yet, and yet, indeed, you're going to try. I, I am indeed. Um, bit of a, uh, I'd say a left field pick, but actually it's a right wing pick. Um, I'm going for for talk radio, the uh, very right wing uh, radio uh, mm. chat, uh, station, um, which has got like you know the likes of Julia Hartley Brewer and as their hosts. I'm going for them because basically I was umming and ahhing over. Over kind of like the right the right wing media sphere, um, and I was kind of going maybe maybe because like GB News has kind of had a little bit of a bounce back. It's not don't go doing anywhere near as good as I think in pe- uh, a lot of people thought it might do. Um, but it it's it's survived and it's kind of continuing on. They keep on re- revamping stuff, bringing in new people, and um, and and, and, try, and are trying to. Fix their formula to, to 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 make it work, but I don't quite think GB News is worthy of a pick. Like t- the Times uh, have released a radio station in the past couple of years, which has actually been been getting good reviews and starting to kind of pick stuff up and uh, and, and things like that. But my 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 thought was talk radio is well, one I, I believe they're looking at doing a TV station as well. Which is is an interesting one because talk radio is in many ways what GB News kind of wanted to be originally, or would have been straight away if Andrew Neil hadn't been involved. It's just right wing talking points, you know, lambasting the left consistently, very kind of cultural focused and orientated. Sounds fantastic. How can we possibly hear this? Amazing sounding publication full of rigorous truth tellers. I genuinely don't know, and I don't care to so find out. Um, I only ever come across it from the bloody uh, from from stuff that's shared online from, from like little videos. Um, but and I, and I bring this up because we are starting to see a certain type of um, figure or figures starting to get ostracised from mainstream media. This literally happened over the past couple of days, where Majid Nawaz, one of LBC's um, kind of like uh, hosts of, of of their various shows, um, was let go basically for spreading disinformation on vaccines and all kinds of kinds of things like that. Um, and he's the sort of figure that I could see turning up on places like talk radio and talk radio, as you have this kind of small anti-vax right largely right wing kind of part of the population i could see them gravitating towards that and i could see talk radio and if they are doing a tv show talk talk tv for lack of a better term um being the sort of place where they would gravitate and it becomes like a little mini influencer within the 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 right wing media sphere you know um in the way that i think a lot of people thought gb news might be but hasn't been so far it's a bit of a out there pick, but yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I suppose it's that sort of 
Steve Baker type dog, uh, tail wagging dog pick. Um, yeah, the Magic Noir's case is slightly tragic on a number of levels. Um, one of which is, I think, Isabel Oakshot saying that somehow it was, he was being called out by other LBC presenters who were left wing on woke, except one of them was Ian Dale. Yeah. Who is not a left wing. No. No, I don't, I wouldn't David, necessarily describe him as woke either. Like, all I can, the only thing I can think now about talk radio is Mike Graham and that clip that went viral last year about how you can't grow concrete. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll be lying if I said that I didn't factor somewhat into my uh, in, into my uh, my choice in some form. Because, like you know, you know, being a mover and shaker doesn't necessarily mean it's all positive for you. Well, this is what I'm hoping now. I have Boris Johnson stuck as my leader pick. Is that the <laughs> yeah. chaotic evil unleashes? Actually, that's pretty nailed on, isn't it? Things that aren't nailed on, though, are our wild card picks. Indeed. How wild is your card, Steve? Uh, I don't think it's that wild. I think I don't know. Like, well, it's, it, it, it's all, a it, all, wild card. it all makes sense to me. Oh no! Like, or has the potential? Gone. Uh, I've gone with Prince Andrew. <laughs> Sorry, hang on. I think our lawyers are on the phone. <laughs> Prince Andrew is currently being sued for various reasons, which we probably can't actually say due to <laughs> fear of being sued ourselves uh, in the United States. It really looks like it's going to go to full kind of tr- trial isn't the right the right word, but go to court properly. Uh, and depending on what happens there, that has some major potential to blow back in, in British politics because it involves a royal family. Mm. I did think about including him as a wildcard pick and then thought, I really don't want to have to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> I have no search. So, thank you, Steve, you massive <laughs> troll. Anyway, no sweat. So I've gone for a very different... Actually, I've gone for another Andrew, but it's a different Andrew's wildcard pick. Which Andrew have you gone for? I've gone for Andrew Pollard who's chair of the JCVI, the Joint Com- Committee of Vaccinations and Immunisations. Okay. A bit like my, my pick last year, actually, Jonathan Van Tam, in that a lot of British politics this year will obviously be focused around the pandemic, and specifically around the booster programme, given that vaccines appear to be about the only way in which the government is willing to deal with a pandemic in a way that pleases its backbenchers. Yeah. And so already over the last few weeks, we've seen the JCVI decide they don't want to give booster jabs to all children under the age of 12. They're just going to give them to children who are vulnerable under the age of 12. They've also decided, um, I I think, uh, earlier, even just in the last 24 hours, Andrew Pollard's come out and said, he doesn't see a need for a fourth booster yet. Um, and I think those those decisions and the rollout of the vaccines, or whether or not it happens, who they are given to, I think that'll be a big feature of British politics, certainly in the short term. But I imagine towards the end of the year, when we end up in a sort of winter flu season, I imagine will be a big factor still yeah. as well. So I actually have one like other potential thing which I kind of want to want to mention. No, not for any points or, or, or anything like this in terms of when we come to review this at the this end of the year. It's just for pride, Steve. Yeah. Uh, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, the Chief of Defence Staff. Ooh. Because Russia be sabre-rattling. Wow. On that note... <laughs> that happy thought...
starts with mean to go on. I did, Steve. I literally started the episode with despair. And, and somehow um, we made it wor- I've made it worse. Well, there you go. If you want to hear more despair, yeah. um, we had the end of year quiz and there were some extra predictions, bonus predictions, if you like, which we got our team of dedicated professional panellists to answer, which we'll be putting out next week on our Patreon page. And if you want to listen to those, where are you going to have to go, Steve? You should head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, but where but for a four, uh, but for a few pounds every month, you will receive these unique episodes that go out only to our backers on there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram designed our logo. James and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Pucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Writer. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs>